This special edition of the Parsha Podcast is dedicated in loving memory of Robert Joseph Weinberger, the father-in-law of a dear friend of mine and a dear friend of Torch. May his soul be elevated in heaven. So I know this is late. It's Friday, a little bit afternoon here in Houston, Texas. As many of you know, my family and I spent the summer in the Northeast, originally in New York and subsequently in Canada, and we drove back this week, and we got back late Thursday night, so I had a choice. Either I was going to do a podcast and deliver it very late, or not do it at all, and I figured better late than never, especially because the subject of today's podcast is so important, so life-changing, so potentially civilization-changing, I figure it's important to share it. Thank God the trip was uneventful. We arrived back home safely. Along the way, we heard the fantastic news that Israel is making peace with the Gulf nations, starting with the United Arab Emirates. What wonderful news to hear along the drive. And hopefully this will be a harbinger of peace to come in the Middle East and for Jews across the world. I had an interesting story that I wanted to share before we begin uh, something that happened to us along the way, as anyone who has taken a long road trip with small children knows, if you're going to take a long trip, there's a lot of time that you need to kill and the kids go absolutely bonkers if there is nothing to do. So you listen to music, each kid maybe gets a device, but we drove from the beginning of the summer until we came back, we drove almost 4,000 miles. And one of the things that we did was we started counting how many license plates and if we could get all 50 states. Now, of course, Alaska and Hawaii, it's not possible to find it, essentially. Now, we did actually yesterday, we were driving somewhere in Arkansas and I almost crashed. I saw an Alaska license plate. The kids went nuts. We went bonkers. We actually saw an Alaska license plate. Now, what's really interesting about this, and this is the reason why I'm sharing you, I think there's a nice lesson here. So we drove and we kept on finding more and more obscure plates, Vermont, New Hampshire. Eventually, we got both of the, of the Dakotas. And of course, like I mentioned, we got Alaska, which of course is a great catch. But for some reason, Nevada and New Mexico remained elusive. So we found all the states, besides for Hawaii and Nevada and New Mexico. I was thinking New Mexico, it's like right next to Texas. And I'm driving for five hours in Texas and I'm driving all across the hemisphere, essentially. Driving across the Northeast and along highways and in Canada, 4,000 miles. And I don't see New Mexico. So essentially we give up. Late last night, it's 11.30 at night and... I am literally a mile away from my house in Houston. And boom, one of the last cars that I see before I arrive home has this yellow New Mexico plate. And I think this is such a nice metaphor in life. We're told from the Talmud that a person has to strive and toil and then they will discover, then they will find. And the commentaries point out that there is a little bit of a conflict. If you strive and you toil, you'd imagine that you'd earn it. 
Yet the verbiage of the Talmud, the precise words of the Talmud are, if you work really hard, you will find it like you find a lost item. No one goes and says, hey, I'm going to plan to find something. It happens at random. The commentaries explain that what this teaches us is that the ultimate discovery is a gift from God. Whatever it is, you're working hard, the effort that you invest, the toil that you put in, the input, so to speak, is not necessarily correlated to the output, to what you discover. That could be a gift from God. That could be something that you find as if it was random. But the Almighty gives luck, so to speak. The Almighty gives random discoveries to people who put in the effort. So I was thinking, you know, you're driving almost 4,000 miles and one of the games that you're playing is looking at all the license plates and you're working really hard and essentially give up. We're not going to see New Mexico. And then boom, it just pops up there all the way at the very end of the journey. I thought that was a nice, interesting metaphor and lesson. So I figured I would share it. Now this week is Parshas Re'e. And I think there's such a powerful idea in this week's parsha at the very beginning, maybe the most powerful idea in all of Torah. And it's so earth-shattering. It's so life-altering. It's so potentially civilization-changing. It's very important to listen and to absorb. And I want to introduce the idea with a fascinating episode in the Talmud from the book of Avodah Zarah, 11a. And this is an interesting episode of the Talmud I was working on, and it helped me arrive at this particular point from our Parsha. Now, it tells the story, the Talmud does, about an individual named Unculus. Unculus, of course, is not a very Jewish name, but anyone who has familiarity with Jewish literature knows that Unculus is found in every Chumash, in every book of the Pentateuch, or almost every book of the Pentateuch, of the Torah, you find in the inner margin of the page the translation, the Targum of Unculus. And who was Unculus? Unculus was a Roman who converted and became Jewish. And he was hired to translate the Torah into Aramaic, and his translation is the authoritative and sanctioned translation of the Torah, of course, to exclude the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Torah, not really sanctioned, not really authoritative. This is considered to be authoritative translation of the Torah, and it's done by Unculus, a former Roman, a former Roman nobleman who converted to Judaism. And the Talmud is telling you a story. Turns out he is actually a nephew of one of the Roman emperors. According to some, it was the emperor Titus who destroyed the temple. According to others, it was the emperor Hadrian who, of course, was one of the great villains of Jewish history in the second century of the Common Era. So we have this great figure, Unculus, in the first and or second century of the Common Era, and he writes this translation, the authoritative translation, done at the behest of the great rabbis, and we still read it today. The Talmud tells a story. He's this great Roman nobleman, and he converts and becomes a Jew. And his uncle is the Roman emperor. And he wants to go rescue his nephew from the clutches of the Jews. And the Talmud tells a story. He sent a platoon of Roman legionaries to go extract him, to go arrest him, to go bring him back to Rome. So they arrive at his house. And he starts schmoozing with them. He starts talking to them. And he starts telling them some verses in scripture. And they are so impressed with what they hear. They say, you know what? 
we're in. We want to convert as well. And they convert. And when the Roman emperor discovers that the platoon he sent converted, he sends a second platoon. And he says to these legionaries, okay, be careful. My nephew Uncles is very persuasive. I don't want y'all to fall into the same trap. I don't want you to convert as well. Don't talk to him. Just grab him, arrest him, handcuff him, and bring him back to Rome. So they arrive at Uncles' door. And they said to him, I'm sorry, we can't hear, we can't, we can't listen to your verses. We have to arrest you. So he says to them, okay, don't listen to my verses. Let's talk about other things. And he starts engaging them in conversation on other matters. And he tells them, he say, don't you notice something interesting? There's a hierarchy of officials. They have a very minor official. And he has to hold a torch in front of a higher official. And the higher official, there's an even higher official. And you go up from the more minor functionary, the more minor local leader, to the higher official, to the dude, to the governor, to the consul, to eventually you get to the emperor, to the ruler of them all. Does the ruler hold the torch in front of the common people? That's what he asks them. And they say, of course, no. Everyone holds the candle, everyone holds a torch in front of the person who is more important, higher on the hierarchy, higher on the totem pole than them. Okay, interesting. Where are you going with this? Says Uncleus. But the Almighty, of course, has all the power. He holds the candle. He holds the torch for the Jewish people. And he quotes a verse in Exodus chapter 13 that God goes in front of the Jewish people by day with a pillar of cloud and at night with a pillar of fire. And they are so impressed with Uncleus's statement and with Torah, they too, the second platoon of legionaries, they convert as well. And finally, the emperor sends a third platoon. And he warns them, not only should you not listen to his Torah, don't listen to anything he has to say. This person's dangerous. Uncleus is dangerous. He'll persuade you. You have to just grab him and take him away and bring him here. So they grab him, and as they're pulling him out the door, he touches his mezuzah on the doorpost. And he says to them, do you know what this is? And they respond, no, why don't you tell us what this is? So he responds, Uncleus tells this third group of legionaries, he says, the way it is, with a human king, with a king of flesh and blood, he sits inside and all the servants, all the guards are stationed outside. The king, the ruler, is safely inside. And all the protectors, all the guards, they are all outside. However, with God, it's not like that. The Almighty is outside by the doorpost, of course, as personified by the mezuzah, and he protects the Jewish people who are safely inside. And when they hear that, again, the third group of Roman soldiers convert, and once the emperor goes 0 for 3, 3 and out, he struck out, he doesn't send anyone else to harass Uncleus. This is the story in the Talmud in the book of Avodah on page 11a. We have this nephew of the Roman emperor. He himself converts, 
and he successfully converts three successive platoons of hardened Roman legionaries who are tasked with arresting him. Now, the question I think that we have to ask on this particular story is what exactly is so persuasive about Onkelos's arguments? How did he manage, apparently so easily and so successfully, to convince these tough Romans to become Jews themselves? And think about it. At this time in history, the Romans hated and persecuted the Jews terribly. So there's a lot of animosity between the Romans and the Jews. Yet somehow, Onkelos is able to change these people so thoroughly, so comprehensively, that they themselves say, we want to become Jews like you. So I think the easy answer to this question is that it wasn't necessarily the strength of his arguments, per se, that got these people to change their lives. Onkelos himself, what he represented is something that was tremendously influential and persuasive and powerful to the Romans. He was someone who was like them, part of the Roman aristocracy. And yet, he made this dramatic life change, and therefore, he has the power to inspire other people to make that very same dramatic life change. You have someone, God forbid, who is an addict. They like alcohol or, God forbid, drugs. So we have, of course, the AA system that has been tremendously successful at helping people kick their addiction and live very productive lives. How do they do it? One of the ways that they do it is that they have mentors who themselves were former addicts. And therefore, these people who have gone through the same process as the people are trying to help, they have a natural a kinship and, and affinity with the addicts. They themselves, because of their life story, because of how they themselves personally changed, they can much more easily influence the people who are like they were. And when they see these people who were in the same shoes that they are in presently, and they changed, that can inspire the addicts themselves, to change as well. It's not necessarily about the tactics that these mentors use. It's about who they are and what they represent. You know, I was thinking, I thankfully have the great fortune to be able to teach Torah to a wide audience. But sometimes I wonder how much influence can I really have? Think about it. I grew up in a Torah religious family, always kept kosher, always kept Shabbos, wasn't really in a secular environment in my life, how easily can I inspire someone who didn't grow up in that same way? They could look at me and say, hey, you know, this is the Rabbi Wolby. Maybe he does good podcasts, but I'm not like him. And maybe, maybe I can't really inspire people as much as someone who was raised in a secular environment and they themselves chose to explore Torah more deeply, those people are really like Untilus. They have the superpowers to influence people that did not grow up with Torah to maybe examine it on a more profound and fundamental way. 
you know, I was thinking on this drive, I actually used this tactic. So like I mentioned earlier, when you're on a drive, you're always playing catch up, if you will, trying to prevent the kids from going crazy and fighting. Not always, of course, successfully. But late last night, when we're in the outskirts of, of Houston, I started telling my kids stories. I was regaling them with stories about my youth. And I told them, you know, that I wasn't a great student in school and I struggled to read and I wasn't really into learning Torah until a relatively advanced age. And I remember that like I hated school and the only part, the only redeeming part of school was recess when we got to play ball, got to run around. And I remember, I tell my kids, remember like looking at the clock and it moves so slowly, might as well be moving backwards. It was so painful for me until finally we could be liberated and have some fun and play in recess. And I'm telling this to my kids and one of my sons tells me, he's like, well, Abba, you won't believe it. That's exactly me. And I'm thinking that this is, this is the uncle's point. When my son knows that I struggled with the exact same struggles that he has today, and he gets to see me now, just him knowing that I went through what he has to go through, that I think influences him positively. So how indeed did Unculus influence the Romans? I think the first explanation is that they saw in him the same transformation that they had to undergo and that in itself, just witnessing him, not the strength of his arguments per se, but just witnessing him made it much easier for them to follow in his footsteps. That's the first explanation. The second explanation that I want to share, I heard from my grandfather, a blessed memory. Now, I want to preface it by saying that this is very Kabbalistic. And maybe I shouldn't even be saying it. Maybe I'm doing something wrong by sharing this to the audience so you'll forgive me if I'm making a big mistake here. So my grandfather, blessed memory, read into this Talmud something so profound and even really a little wild and so Kabbalistic as to what exactly is this message of uncles. There's three groups of Roman legionaries and they're coming. The first group, he convinces them, he persuades them, he influences them with verses. Which verses? We don't know. The Talmud doesn't elaborate as to what were the verses that were so persuasive. But then it tells us the two arguments that he made to the second and third groups of the Roman soldiers. To the first of those two, he told that the Almighty holds a candle, holds a torch, if you will, in front of the Jewish people. And therefore, wow, not like human teens who have others hold candles for them. God holds a candle for us. That's the first group. To the second group, the final group of the three, he tells that just like the mezuzah is on the outside of the house, it's on the doorpost, the Almighty protects us from the outside while we are safely ensconced inside. What is he conveying? So my grandfather of blessed memory suggested a very powerful idea. And this is very Kabbalistic. In fact, if you look at the basic 
primers on Kabbalah invariably, or many of them, start with this concept. We believe, of course, that God is infinite. And the basic theological problem that that engenders is, well, if God is infinite, where is the room for anyone else? We are not infinite. And therefore, how can an infinite existence coexist with a finite existence like us, like the universe, like the world, like humanity, like all the species, all the creations. And the way this is resolved Kabbalistically is with a concept called tzimtzum. You know, what exactly this means? Again, one of the biggest subjects in Kabbalah, one of the most fundamental disagreements between the various schools of Kabbalah exactly how to understand this. It's very advanced. But on a simple level, what this means is that the Almighty minimized himself, so to speak, he carved out a place for us to exist. And the way this is presented in the Kabbalistic literature is that there are like concentric circles, so to speak, it's called like ten spherot, whatever that means, that surround, so to speak, the middle point, which is the world, and the middle of that, which is humanity. Almost as if the Almighty is, I don't know what the right word is, but is reducing or minimizing himself and carving out a place for us to exist, so to speak, within the infinite light, as it's called in Kabbalistic literature, the Or Ein Sof, the, the infinite light. Now, I have to always give this disclaimer when we're talking about this. I must confess, I'm not an expert and I'm just kind of saying over the words as I understand them, but I acknowledge that this is something which is very, very, very advanced, and I don't pretend to be an expert in it. But if you take this picture, the Almighty, this infinite existence, infinite light, if you will, is, so to speak, minimizing himself and carving out a place for humanity to exist in the epicenter of this light. It's a very powerful idea that the Almighty is almost moving aside and placing us in the epicenter of existence, so to speak. He is almost ceding control. He is yielding to us. He is moving aside, so to speak, and allowing us to determine what happens. What's Uncleus telling these Romans? He tells them initially that God is holding the light, the infinite light, for us. And God is outside and we are inside. That's an exact picture of what the Kabbalistic literature, how it portrays, so to speak, the geography of existence. That there's this infinite light on the outside, and the Almighty is carving a place, so to speak, and allowing us to exist on the inside. So the Almighty is holding the light on the outside, and that's what he tells these Romans. God is holding the light for us, and he is outside, and we are inside. And what this very powerful Kabbalistic idea is telling us is that we are the center, so to speak, of existence, and we are effectuating what happens 
everywhere else. Again, this is a very powerful idea. The Almighty has all the power, but he's, so to speak, moved outside and placed us on the inside. And what he did is he made our actions, our words, our thoughts, those are the determinants of what happens in the world. This is um, an amazing, a groundbreaking, life-changing, potentially civilization-changing insight. We talk about free will a lot. It's one of the basic beliefs of, of Jewish faith. This is not just free will. This is free will on steroids. It's not just that we have choices. We have the keys to the kingdom. The Almighty, so to speak, is forfeiting the running of the world, so to speak, to us. He's doing it on the outside and putting us on the inside, and he's going to hold the light, so to speak, for us. When Unculus conveys this incredible insight of the Jewish world to the Romans, and he explains that man, Adam, is at the epicenter of creation, and the Jews, with the Torah, we are given the ability to determine what happens in the world, when they hear that, they say, we want in, and they convert. What he's conveying to them is not just this nice idea, God holds light for us, God's on the outside, we're on the inside. He is conveying to them the basic premise of creation based upon the deepest ideas in Jewish mysticism in the Kabbalah. Now, as a side note, if you look in the in the Talmud, there's very little overt Kabbalah. But we're told in the sources that there is tons of Kabbalah in the Talmud, but it's all hidden. It's all masked. And I think this is a great example, a little window, a little peek behind the mask to see how a simple conversation essentially between Onkelos and the Romans really or potentially is really referring to very advanced ideas, very advanced Kabbalistic ideas. But what a powerful insight. We are on the inside. We are in the headquarters with the Almighty and His infinite light, so to speak, around us. And that's the introduction to our Parsha. The first three verses of our Parsha literally say this idea. Let's read it. Re'e, see, I present before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you hearken to the commandments of Hashem your God, and the curse, God forbid, if you don't hearken to the midst of Hashem your God and you follow the idols. What does this mean? God is telling us, I have placed before you, I'm giving you blessing and curse. If you fast forward to chapter 30, verse 15 of Deuteronomy, you find a very similar verse. See, behold, I have given before you today, so the exact same four first words of the first verse of our Parsha. And our Parsha says, I'm giving you blessing and curse. And in chapter 30, it says, I'm giving you the life and the good and the death and the bad. God is giving us something. He's giving us blessing. He is giving us good. He's giving us life on one hand. That's one choice. On the other hand, God forbid, he's giving us curse, 
death, and bad. And the Mitras points out something very powerful. The Mitras says, if you read this verse, you see that the verse starts off in the singular. Behold, I've given to you singular. And it continues, lifnechem, in front of you, plural. So, which is it? What is God, is God giving to me as individual? Or is God giving it to me, to all of us, collectively? So the Mitra says a very powerful idea. We are given power. We are given, of course, responsibility. We are given the two choices. Again, we are in the driver's seat, so to speak, of existence. We're in the middle and God, so to speak, is on the, on the outside, allowing us to determine the direction of history. And we're given the choice. Do we want to drive our history towards blessing or towards curse, towards life or towards death, to good or to evil? And this exists, says the Midrash, on two planes, on two fronts. As an individual, the Almighty gives me the choice. Do you want life? Do you want death? Do you want good? Do you want bad? Do you want blessing? Or sadly, do you want curse? And the Midrash gives a very beautiful analogy. It says that the sword and the book came down together from heaven. And we are given the choice. Do you want the blessing? Do you want the book? Do you want the Torah? Or do you choose, sadly, the sword? Do you want the death and the curse? And that's to us as individuals. The Midrash gives a second analogy. There is a golden necklace. But that same necklace can also be a metal noose. And they might give us the choice. Do we want the necklace? Do we want to be adorned with life, with goodness, with blessing? Or do we choose the other unfortunate option? And that is that we're choosing the death and the curse and the bad of the metal noose. So it starts off in the singular. This is the choice, essentially, that every Jew must make. Those are the individual implications of our deeds. But there's also a collective implication of our actions. Continues the Midrash. Behold, I have placed before you. Amar Rabbi Lazar. Rabbi Lazar says, from the time that the Almighty said the word Anochi, the first word of the Ten Commandments, at Sinai, at that time, from heaven, good or bad, will not come. Who determines whether good or bad happens to the world, both collectively, globally, or individually? Is it God? Says the Midrash, no. Behold, I've placed before you, you, the Jewish people, when I gave you Torah, I gave you this higher level free will, this 50,000 foot view to determine what happens to the world. I have given you the blessing and the curse. That is bound to Torah. And if you choose good, then in effect, you are going to effectuate goodness to the world. And if you choose bad, then sadly, you will bring about bad to the world. That's the same thing that Unculus is telling the Romans. He's telling them, what does it mean to be a Jew? It means that you are sitting in the middle, 
And God, so to speak, is on the outside. He has the light on the outside, and he's giving you the keys, good or bad, life or death, blessing or curse. God used to have those, so to speak, those keys. And with Sinai, with the consecration of the Jewish people at Sinai, he delivered it to us. And that's what Moshe's command the Jewish people in our parsha. Behold, God has given it to us the ability to make this determination of where the world goes. What is our role in history? Why are we special? We are the center of the universe. And therefore, we cannot be derelict in our duty. And this indeed is, as Uncle shows us, the most persuasive idea in Torah. This elevates Torah to a much higher level. It's not just, hey, there's some good rules that had to have a functioning society, had to have a spiritual relationship with God. No, this is the tools. This is the keys. These are the levers of power in the world. God's on the outside. The infant lights on the outside, and we're in the center. And we get to choose which levers do we want to push. How do we want to affect the world? And of course, that applies to us as individuals and applies to us as the ones who decide what happens to the whole world. We could say maybe a little bit cynically, the anti-Semites are right. The Jews are controlling the whole world. But we're not doing it, you know, with the Rothschilds or the financiers or the elders of Zion. We're doing it with the Almighty's Torah. The Almighty is giving us in the Torah the ability to determine what happens in the world. And of course, the blessing of curse is in our hands to determine what happens to us as individuals and to determine what happens to the entire universe, the entire world with our actions, with our thoughts, and with our speech. The Talmud in the book of Psachim, page 68b, tells us that Rav Sheish, one of the great sages of the Talmud, every 30 days he would review all of his Torah study. And then he would celebrate and he would say, my soul is delighted. My soul is delighted. I am studying for my soul. He's in effect saying that his Torah is transformative for himself. Says the Talmud, wait a minute. But is the Torah study that you do, is that for yourself? It's for the whole world. And he quotes the idea Based upon a verse, the verse says that if not for my covenant of day and night, if not for Torah, the rules of heaven and earth I would I would not place. Meaning that if not for Torah, heaven and earth, the universe itself would cease to exist. So which one is it? Are you studying Torah for yourself, for the benefit of your soul? Or are you holding up the entire universe with your Torah? Says the Talmud, the answer is both. Both. Both of them are true. Behold, Re'eh, as an individual, see, I've given to you the blessing and the curse. And that's to you as an individual. Your soul, will it benefit? Will it be emboldened? Will it be strengthened? Will it be nourished and sustained with your Torah? With your mitzvahs? That's your choice. You have these two options. You have the red pill and the blue pill. You have life and death. You have good and bad. You have blessing and curse for you as an individual. But also you should know that the entire world, the entire rules of the world, that is not going to exist on its own. That is reliant on the Jewish people 
doing our duty and upholding this world with Torah. We have the power to give life to our soul, and we also have the power and the responsibility to illuminate the whole world and to uphold the whole world with our Torah. In Jewish literature, the Jews are often described as the pupil of the eye. And what this means is that just as your entire interface with the world is, of course, done via your vision, and all that light of the entire world that you see all has to filter through the pupil of the eye. And that's the idea. Who determines the goodness that is filtered down from heaven to the world, to humanity? That's the Jewish people. We're the pupil of the eye. Via our Torah and mitzvos, we have the decision, so to speak, to make. And we have the power, we have the levers, of blessing and curse, of life and death, of goodness and evil. This is the most powerful and persuasive argument for Torah. That's what Uncle is showing us. And he's revealing to us that when the Almighty gave us Torah at Sinai, he gave us all the power. He himself one of the outside, he's ceding control to us. He is guarding us from outside and he's giving us the tools inside to manage the world. Now, this is a very important concept in Jewish literature and Jewish philosophy. I just want to add a source for this. The Orachayim, one of the great commentators on the Torah, in the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verse 27, this is during the story of the splitting of the sea, he quotes the Talmud. Of course, the splitting of the sea is one of the most important miracles that happened to the Jewish people. And he quotes a story in the Talmud that tells of a great rabbi of the Talmudic era, Rabbi Pinchas ben who himself split the sea. And the question is, wait a minute. Why are we making such a big deal that the Jewish people split the sea when 1,500 years hence, in the second century of the Common Era, a rabbi does it himself? And the answer is like this. The Jewish people split the sea before Sinai, before they got the Torah, before they were delivered the keys, the levers, the power, the tools to manage the world. Before, so to speak, God carved out the space for the Jewish people inside, and he, so to speak, went outside and illuminated us from without with the infinite light. Before Sinai, before Torah, that's an amazing miracle to split the sea. Comes along Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yar 1,500 years later, and he splits the sea. Of course he could split the sea. He has all the power. He's in the headquarters. He's in the epicenter. He holds all the keys because he has Torah. And those are the keys to uphold the world and to effectuate blessing versus curses, good versus bad, life versus death. What an incredible insight. I don't think it is an overstatement to say that this is a life-changing insight and potentially a civilization-changing insight. The Almighty had the blessing. He had the good. He had the life. And of course, he had the curse. He had the bad. He had the death. But he chose to give that to us. That is why we are special. That is what Torah is. We are in the center of the universe. We are calling the shots. And we have this great power. And of course, with great power comes great responsibility. May we all study Torah and do mitzvahs with the joy and the excitement and the knowledge to know that we are the ones who are bringing blessing 
and goodness and life to ourselves and to the world around us. Thank you so much for listening. I am delighted to be back on track, hopefully, please God, on the Parsha podcast. I missed you all in the previous weeks. I hope everyone's doing fantastic and everyone's staying safe and everyone's happy and healthy and strong. Thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.